as you know, we've been preaching every Sunday in the season of Epiphany on who Jesus is. As the lectionary texts for Epiphany has carried us, have carried us through the highlights of Christ's ministry in this short season, especially short this year, between Christmas and Lent. We started with the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, and the Father's voice saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. <coughs> we saw his first miracle at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, when he turned water into the wine of gladness and joy. We saw Jesus stand up at the synagogue at Nazareth and announce to his hometown crowd that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, like no one else ever before or since to fulfill God's promise to bring good news to everyone, especially the poor and the captive. We saw how that message was both inclusive and exclusive enough to make a lot of people angry, especially those who knew him best. We saw that he sends us out into the deep waters to become fishers of men. We saw that the people he calls blessed are pretty much the opposite of what the world has always thought blessedness looks like. That is, the poor, the hungry, those who weep and are persecuted. They're blessed, happy, according to Jesus. We saw that he calls us to love not just our friends, but also our enemies. And that he practiced what he preached by loving us all the way to the cross. Even when, as St. Paul said, we were yet enemies of God. Now this week, the last Sunday of Epiphany, the story of Jesus reaches a dramatic turning point. We have covered it here in eight weeks, but by now, this part of the story, Jesus has actually spent years preaching and teaching throughout Israel. He's a well-known public figure at this point. He's been healing, working miracles, and training up his disciples. Right after our text for today, Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem for what he knows will be his last journey and for what he knows will be waiting for him when he gets there. It will be, as Moses and Elijah are, are talking about with Jesus on the mountain, the occasion of his departure, which he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In Greek, this is helpful. The word that we translate here as departure is actually Exodus. I actually think we may as well just use the word exodus instead of departure. It will be a departure, yes, but not just a death or a going away on a trip. It will be instead, Luke is trying to say, the kind of exodus that God accomplished through Moses when he delivered the people of Israel from captivity to Egypt. That's what Jesus is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. A new exodus. It will be the kind of exodus that sets us free from the powers of sin and death, and as we saw in the gospel reading today, the devil. It will carry through what the Spirit of the Lord began to do through Moses and Elijah, and will accomplish it once and for all. There are so many things that we could focus on in this story. It's a good thing that we tell the story at this time every year, I think, because I think we could preach on it every Sunday, much like the Christmas story, and never get to the bottom. 
What I want to focus on today is that this is a story where, what, where we see that Jesus reveals his glory precisely in his cross-shaped suffering love that lays down his life for sinners like you and me. Let me say that again in a slightly different way. This story shows us that Jesus reveals his glory by loving the world so much that he was willing to die for the sake of his enemies. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That, Luke says in this story, is what the glory of God actually looks like in this world. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that before he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross, and he's, and he's trying to teach us the same thing as we head into the season of Lent. <coughs> the reformer Martin Luther, whom I like to quote, likes to say that there are two ways to be a theologian. Two ways to think about the Christian faith, really, he might have said. You can either be a theologian of glory, or you can be a theologian of the cross. What's the difference? Well, he says, a theologian of glory likes things like grand buildings and lofty sentiments and beautiful music, power and wealth, pomp and circumstance. And he thinks that God is like that. That's where God is, all of those types of things. A theologian of glory looks around at the world at whatever looks big and shiny and powerful and successful, and he says, well, that's God. Or anyway, that's my kind of God. That's the kind of God that I want to worship, because I want to be like that too. Well, if that's the way you think about God, then things like suffering, poverty, doing the hard work of reconciling with your enemies will only get in the way. Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan is a way of telling us, I think, that this is a temptation for most all of us. All of the supposedly great and good religious people, you'll recall, pass on by the man who'd been robbed and beaten and left by the side of the road for dead. They all have their excuses. And I think very often we do too. None of us really want, do we, the kind of religion that has a cross at its center? And yet there it is. Hear me when I say that I think that's only natural. No one wants the cross. The cross means suffering and death, real pain and real sacrifice. When we know what it means. It's only natural to resist. Jesus himself, didn't he, prayed before going to the cross that this cup be taken away if it was his Father's will. Peter, I think, in this story, felt much the same way. Luther might say that he was being a kind of, of a theologian of glory. You might remember that before the transfiguration, Jesus had started telling his disciples plainly that he was going to Jerusalem not just for worship, but 
so that he could suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. What did Peter say to that? Peter actually takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord, Peter says. This shall never happen to you. This is the same Peter who in this story, when he sees Jesus transfigured on the mountain, <clears throat> talking with Moses and Elijah, says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see what he's saying? I think he's saying, let's stay here, Lord. We have it good up here. Forget about all of that suffering and dying business you told me about. Forget about your enemies. You don't need them. They're awful people who are only out to get us. We're your disciples. We're the ones who love you. Forget them. God is with us here, not with them out there. Makes a kind of sense, doesn't it? But that's not what Jesus is about. In this story, we don't see him giving a direct answer to Peter. You might say the answer to Peter will consist of the whole rest of his ministry his path to the cross that will follow during the season of Lent. Instead, in this story, all we have is that the glory of God begins to grow in intensity and depth, like an overshadowing cloud filling the air itself. And a voice from everywhere at nowhere and nowhere says, This is my Son, my Chosen. Listen to Him. It's like God is saying to Peter, My friend, you have no idea what the glory of God looks like. I'm going to show you. I'm going to draw you into it. And as you follow my son and listen to him, you'll begin to see what the glory of the Lord really looks like. It's not what the world glorifies. God's glory in this world looks like the love of Jesus that goes to the cross. You have to understand that Peter and the theologians of glory are making a kind of sense. Peter didn't want his teacher and friend to, be, to suffer and to be humiliated and to die. Of course not. Who would? Of course Peter resisted the cross. You see, if Christianity were just a religion for the good people, those of us who are decent, upstanding citizens, who do our best to love our neighbors and pay our taxes and treat people the way we'd like to be treated, well, it would be fairly easy to be a Christian. We'd just come each week to the mountaintop, right? We'd encounter God. We'd enjoy the fellowship of other good and decent people, people we like to spend time with. We could come to a place with beautiful music and lofty sentiments and be inspired by the world of good that we're doing. That sounds wonderful. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? Well, unfortunately, inside of that is a temptation that Jesus says no to. A very hard no. 
that's what Peter and most of us think that God's glory look like, looks like. But it turns out that that's not it at all. Instead, God's glory is found when we leave the mountaintop and go and do the hard work of loving our enemies. Remember the Beatitudes? God's glory is found when this love is costly and hard. Blessed are you. God's glory shines in your face like Moses. When loving your enemies causes you to be poor, to mourn, to be hungry, to be reviled and persecuted and falsely accused by those that you love and seek only to serve in Christ's name. The former dean of Duke Chapel, Sam Wells, puts it this way. Glory, he says, is precisely facing the reality of suffering, especially suffering taken on willingly for the sake of truth and justice and faith, and allowing the cloud to come around you and others to see God in you. Glory is the word we use when you feel only pain, but others through you yet see hope. Glory is the word we use when you feel isolation and loneliness, but others through you yet see a great cloud of witnesses. Glory is the word we use when you feel failure and humiliation, but others through you yet see beauty and goodness. Glory is the word we use when you feel foolishness, but others through you yet see Jesus. We call this glory because God in Christ walked the way of the cross and found there not an end, not just a defeat, but instead walked through it to the joy of Easter morning. If there were no Easter morning, then Peter would be right. It would be better to avoid the pain and the suffering that comes along with loving our enemies and seeking reconciliation with people who have done us wrong and frankly don't deserve it. Isn't that what Peter said to Jesus, more or less? Forget them, Lord. They don't care about you. They just want to kill you. Tell them off. Leave them alone. If you try to love them, you'll just wind up getting hurt. Stay here on the mountain. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, that would make a whole lot of sense. It's easier, all things considered, to just give up on people sometimes. It's easier to give up on the marriage that's fallen apart. To just walk away from all the heartache and struggle and pain. It's easier to give up on the son or the daughter who's made their own life a mess and keeps on breaking your heart. It's easier to walk away from the people who've done your people wrong and who seem so pig-headed that they refuse to listen to reason or consider that they're even a little bit to blame for anything. 
so much easier. But that's not, thank God, what Jesus did to us. He could have stayed up on that mountain. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die at our hands. He could have stayed up there, waited for us to come to him, and literally, to hell with everyone else. But that's not what he did. He went down from the mountain. He went to the cross. He came to us. And that's where he revealed his glory. I pray this Lent that we would all be given by God's Holy Spirit the strength to love like Jesus did and the faith to take up our cross and follow him. Will you pray with me? O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.